Well, good morning, brothers. Good to see all of you today, and <clears throat> thank you, Art, for that encouraging prayer and for the music. Thank you, uh, Ben and Sam. Please turn with me in your Bibles to First Thessalonians, where you've been for a while, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. You've studied this book long enough to know whom Paul is addressing it's a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles, and a, a, a group of people who were accustomed to living uh, in loyalty to idols, but you've probably learned as well that <clears throat> the main attraction to idol worship was financial success, and that uh, the temptation for Christians was uh, to compromise and act like, go along with uh, uh, participation in various things that were dedicated to cultic worship because it was a way to keep up your business. If you, if you didn't go to the idol feasts, uh, then you wouldn't, have the, uh, you wouldn't have the mark of approval on your shop window and you would be boycotted, you would be cut out of society. So the main temptation for Christians uh, was not the thought that uh, maybe an idol is true, but the main temptation for a Christian was, uh, I don't want my income to decrease. I don't want to stand out and, and uh, look like a crazy person in society. So I'm just going to tiptoe on the edges. I'll go to church on Sunday, and I'll just blend in. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I want to keep my standard of living. And uh, Paul is leaning into that spirit of compromise uh, for not only for financial success, but also because, uh, as we'll learn today, for sexual pleasure and indulgence of, of other kinds. And then it spreads by ethics into other areas, compromise in regard to interpersonal relationships. If, if you've if you've dismissed Christ as Lord of everything because you don't want to live uncomfortably, then everything becomes acceptable and you can find a way to rationalize it. So with that in mind, we look at what Paul writes to these Thessalonians. And in my Bible, it has a, a, a heading that reads, A Life Pleasing to God. That's very appropriate. Let's begin reading God's Word. Finally then, brothers... We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, <coughs> but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. For we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The Word of God. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Lord, for your Word that instructs us in everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your Word that comes from your heart, that tells us what we need to do, what we need to believe, the kinds of people we need to be, even if it uh, makes us uncomfortable, even if it disturbs our lifestyle. But we remember that it is your word from your heart, and you tell it to us because you want life to go well with us. We pray, Lord, as we listen first of all for it, uh, to it for ourselves, uh, that we would appropriate it, that we would not be like those who look in a mirror and forget what they've seen, but it would make a difference in our lives. It would change us. It would help us to live more freely. It would help us to live more pleasingly to you, which we ask that would be contagious to those around us who do not know you. We also pray that you would help us to take this word to those whom we lead, those whom we have a responsibility to protect, those whom we have the opportunity to disciple. Help us, Lord, to share it with them with the same grace with which you share it with us to commend it to them with our lives, we humble ourselves before you and say, what you teach us, we will do by the enablement of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray it. And God's men said together, amen. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I was meeting with a, <clears throat> with a young man I had been trying to lead to Christ, and we had met for, we would meet for breakfast on regular occasion. And I had uh, met with him uh, time and time again. And he was uh, someone, he was one of those uh, tough nuts to crack that we typically have in the South because he was already convinced he was a Christian. He was a Christian because he went to church. He was a Christian because he was faithful to his wife. He showed up at work on time. He, uh, he, uh, he was loving to his children. Uh, he did not do the things that he saw in other people that were obviously bad. So he was a Christian. It's really hard to, uh, to convince someone like that they are in need of Christ. And I was uh, <clears throat> just uh, continued to engage with him. And one morning he surprised me because when he sat down at the table, he said, I need to become a Christian. Now, it didn't give me the satisfaction, you know, that I could pat myself on the back and say, ah, that did it. The Spirit had been working. But the Spirit had been working in a very interesting way. His dad, he was approaching the age of his dad when his dad died at a young age of a heart attack. And uh, he said, you know, I'm getting to the age when my dad died, and when I look at my life, my life is not the same as my dad's. My dad was a godly man. My dad was 
my Sunday school teacher as well as a really good father to me. And I realize that my dad was that kind of man because he had given his life over to Jesus. Given his life over to Jesus to run it. Given his life over to Jesus to tell him what to do through his word, to make his business decisions, his ethical decisions, his, his financial decisions. Even if it cost him, those, Jesus was his Lord. I want the rest of my life. God has allowed me to live at least one day longer than my dad, and I want my life to make the difference in other people's that his life made in me. But I know the first step is I have to give my life over to the lordship of Christ. Now, that's very much what Paul is, is, uh, is arguing here, that we first... Uh, realize our position in Jesus Christ. First, then we ask you brothers, he says in verse 1, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now, as you read the New Testament, you learn to look for that little prepositional phrase, in Christ or in the Lord. It's not incidental. It's theological. It's what we call in in theology, union with Christ. That is, when Christ saves you, He joins you mysteriously to His life. He moves into you. Therefore, you, there, there, there must be an observable difference in your life if Jesus is in you, you're in Christ, because He is, and according to Scripture, living out, burning His way out of you and if there is no evidence of your Christ-likeness, then there's little evidence of your being in Christ. And so my friend saw that uh, just acting like, doing a few select things that Christians do was not enough. He needed to be in Christ. He needed Christ in him. He needed his life joined to Christ. And so Paul's point is, if you are in Christ, you and I must walk more and more as someone trying to please God. That's the language here. You must, this is who you are in Christ. Now, the calling of God in your sanctification is to become more and more like Him through the enablement of of the Spirit. Well, let's look at how that unfolds in uh, these uh, verses 1 through 12. In case it's not clear enough, uh, this is not written to all people. It's written to brothers, only brothers, only those joined to Christ, brothers and sisters, only those joined to Christ are those who are going to be able to live this way. He uses this language, verse 1, very in. in uh, you know, we throw around brother pretty easily, but Paul uh, uses it very selectively. Finally, then, brothers. Uh, the Old Testament used this language, brothers, uh, and jointly referring to brothers and sisters. But the, the idea was this is a group of people who uh, are not related to each other in any other way except in the Lord. 
And so the brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, becomes a group of people who are united by one, by Christ alone. And the, the miracle of the New Testament, one of the great apologetics of New Testament Christianity was people would come from the outside and look in at a group of people and they could tell just by the composition, this is a miracle. These people are not supposed to be here with each other. They're from different parts of the city. They're from different parts of the socioeconomic strata. They're different colors. They're from different regions. These people are not supposed to like each other. And these people are not supposed to worship the same God. They're supposed to have their own regional gods. What is going on? What is the force that brings these people together and not only sits, seats them in the same place and enables them to worship the same God, but they actually love each other to the point they call each other father and mother and sister and brother. So Paul is very warmly addressing. He's saying, look, you are the beloved children of God. You are loving to each other. You've been brought together by the miracle of the gospel. Therefore, live out that reality. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we have the foundation for why we must or, or why we must obey or where we get our guidance. Everybody has to start with an authority. It's not just enough, not enough for us to say, now Paul said it, or it's a good idea, or the preacher said it, or I think it. We must, we must every one of us, everyone has an authority. Everyone has a foundation of authority. Everyone we talk to has an, a foundation of authority. It doesn't take you long to get at it because they'll quote it. They quote it, they'll say, the news said, the Wall Street Journal said, New York Times said, my wife said, my child said, I think, my preacher said. None of those is an adequate foundation for authority. Here is the only foundation of authority we have in, in, in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how we, you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, this is an apostle. An apostle is one who was the authority for writing the Word of God. The Bible says that the, the church is founded on the, the authority of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. That is, the written writings of the Scriptures. Those things attested to us by the, the way the books made it into the Bible is they were attested by miracles. And uh, every person who was accepted as a biblical writer had to be confirmed by observable miracles, fulfilled prophecy. And when that happened, that book was put into the canon of Scripture. And so Paul, as an apostle, who was qualified as one who had personally seen the Lord Jesus and was a worker of miracles, Paul says, we have received from Jesus what we are passing on to you. Now, he's using technical language from his culture. <clears throat> this first-person pronoun, we, urge, we urge, that's technical language, used by kings and governors and rulers. 
like they're writing a letter to you and said, we, that is Caesar, is commanding you to put your trash on the curb on Tuesday, every Tuesday at 2 o'clock. And if you don't, I'll cut your head off. This is the same kind of language. We urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul is speaking as Caesar, speaking as a king, as a governor on behalf of Jesus. And then it follows with what you're supposed to do. We urge you to walk and please God. So they're, they're ready for that. Ooh, this is official language. What he says is he's representing an, a supreme authority, a king, Jesus, who is superior even to Caesar. We better listen. Now, what's he going to tell us to do? And then in the, the main part of this, this uh, passage, which we'll get to in a moment, he tells us exactly what we are supposed to do. But let me pause just for a minute more on this idea of an authority, the Bible as our authority. There is a survey <clears throat> uh, that comes out, to, I don't know, that comes out every year, put out by Ligonier Ministries, and um, it's, uh, it's called The State of Theology. And, it, and the, this uh, report just came out a few weeks ago, The State of Theology. And what they do is, is take a survey of, even <laughs> of, the, of the country at large and then at the, of evangelicals in particular. And they, they're asking, what do evangelicals believe? People who identify not just as Christians generically, but people who generally say, I believe that you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, I believe in the the gospel. I believe in a gospel that is to be evangelized. So <clears throat> people like uh, in this church, or I would presume mostly in this room. And uh, this year, the, the title of the, of the survey was something like the five dominant heresies in the evangelical church. And they gave uh, some statistics that are, you know, encouragingly surprising but most of them are very discouraging. And the most discouraging one is this, this one uh, which, was, uh, which was this question. Here was the way the question was asked. The Bible, you know, do you agree with this or not? The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And the question is, do you, do you agree with that or you disagree with that? Evangelicals asking. Now, you would expect the evangelicals to say, I disagree with the question itself. It's, like, it's not like all sacred writings. It doesn't contain myths. It is the Word of God. It is literally true. But here is the way uh, evangelicals answered in 2014, 41% agreed with that. That means, you know, 59, you know, let me use my Alabama public school math. I think that's 59% that said, that said, we don't agree with that. No, that's not true. 2016, 44% agreed with it. 2020, 48% agreed with it. 2022, 53% agree that... The Bible contains ancient myths like other books and is not 
literally true. No wonder. There's so much debate and challenge, even within the evangelical church, even at times within our church, because our foundation, our foundational authority is not first to ask, what does the Scripture teach? It is first to say, this is what I think. This is what makes me uncomfortable. This is what I learned in the news. This is what I was told. This is what my wife or husband or children want. As opposed to whatever the Bible says, even if it makes me stand out as a freak in the culture, even if it loses my friends, even if it gets me out of the, puts me out of the club, even if it costs me customers, I'm standing on what the Bible says because King Jesus, the superior ruler to all rulers, has written the Word of God through his apostles and prophets and tells me what I must do and believe and become. So the very first place we start is where do we get our guidance? And our guidance is the Word of God as it's attested to us by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So having laid that foundation then, Paul in verse 3 says, Now this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is God's, you want to know what God's, you know, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're looking for the will of God. What's the direction of God for my life? Do I take this turn or that turn? Do I make this decision or that decision? Well, the God's will for your life is that you be holy. God's will for your life is that you, no matter what decision you make, even if it's the wrong decision in, a, in an inconsequential manner, even if it's the wrong decision, if you've made it because out of loyalty to Jesus Christ, what you perceive to be, this is what I perceive God's will for me to be, to be holy unto him. God honors that. This is, your, this is the, the overall will of God, your sanctification. Now he says, let me get a little more specific. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, uh, we might think, well, boy, these Thessalonians must have been bad folks because he's got to start with sexual immorality. But let me tell you, it's the first place we have to start today too. And it's the first place that, the, that uh, Christian teaching, in the Old Testament included, has always had to begin not because it's the most fundamental thing to being a Christian. It is, by the way, the only way mentioned. It doesn't, it's not the only way we're made in the image of God, but it's the, <clears throat> it is our sexuality or our gender that is expressly in creation joined to what it means to be created in the image of God. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. So our sexual fidelity our gender fidelity, our morality in our sexual, the sexual aspect of our life is, a, one of the, it is one of the most critical parts of demonstrating to the world the beautiful image of God. So it's important. And it's also a dividing line between those who are truly and seriously living for Christ and those who are not. The sexual ethic in Christianity, and we could say for all of 
for all of redemptive history, the sexual ethic is um, is uh, one of of uh, it's the hardest ethic to preach and to apply and to practice. Um, you know, in this in this ancient world, um, the 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 reigning worldview was that <clears throat> you were you were doomed or destined to perform uh, and to behave in certain sexual ways by the stars you were born under. So if you were born under the star that would make you a free man, then that gave you a right to everyone's body sexually except a married woman. If you were born a slave boy, you were a victim and you were destined and you had no right to oppose being mistreated sexually by any free man. If you were a single woman, the same thing. So when, when, the, the, when the gospel, when they're starting to preach the gospel and unpack the will of God for the way we live, it was a, it was a radical departure from the dominant worldview of the ancient world. Um, because it said to it said to a free man, "You have no right to anyone else's body unless you are willing to marry that person and pledge fidelity to her until death you do part, and otherwise your responsibility is to use your freedom and your power to protect the vulnerable." sexually around you. It said, and then you can imagine why then Christianity spread uh, like wildfire among slaves and women because they hear now instead of what they've been taught all their lives, the gods are men or they're, or they're wild women and they, uh, are, they promote this kind of, of uh, uh, this animal-like sexual predatory behavior, that they hear, no, God is a father. And God cares for you. And God has made you in his image. You are his daughter. And he's a very jealous and protective father. And he brings vengeance. You hear that word, that language in here? He brings vengeance on those who mistreat and take advantage of you sexually. And you don't let a man touch you or cross those boundaries unless he is willing to pledge himself to you until death and to you exclusively. You can imagine why, oh, this is a religion for me. This is a loving heavenly father. This is one who treats me as a human being with dignity and made in his image. Now, that is something for us to recapture. That is something that this this culture is desperately in need of, and I can tell you that vulnerable people uh, are especially wanting. Not just women, not just single women, but also young men who don't want to walk into that, 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 that train of behavior that the typical fraternity and college lifestyle pushes them to, to say, if you're going to be a real man, this is what you need. This is the kind of conquest you need to have. 
But Paul lays into this very heavily and says, you must abstain from sexual immorality. Let me be even more specific, he says, verse 4, each one of you needs to know how to control his own body. Paul is, uh, Paul is uh, blunt in his speech. He says, I want each of you to control your genitalia and honor God with it. Romans 6, he says, submit the instruments of your body. To Christ as Lord. Uh, a, a nice way to say, submit your sexual parts to Christ. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an adventure. So apparently he is leaning into sexual infidelity, fornication, uh, adultery, even in the Christian community, just like we have to address almost every week in the Christian community here. Pornography, um, wandering affections, if not uh, sexual uh, intercourse, fornication. Paul says, King Jesus demands that your body be yielded to him every part of it, the secret parts of your life as well as the public parts of your life. And look, he says, I'm speaking to family members, and I'm speaking to family members especially who are wronging other family members. God's going to avenge this. This is the strongest language Paul uses regarding sexual immorality in his writings. It's, strong. It's, it's even stronger than 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which effectively says, if you are having sex with someone who is not your spouse, you may as well be doing it on the altar of God because your body is the altar of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are dragging Jesus into the bed of immorality with you. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Your body belongs to Christ and must be kept pure for your wife or your husband or you must be kept pure for Christ if you're single. And if you have responsibility, influence on someone else, you must protect them as well. Uh, <clears throat> we deal with this. Uh, we deal with this temptation. I deal with this temptation in my life. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that. I'm not gonna say that. I'm. I'm exempt from it. We all must battle this temptation of of sexual immorality, sexual infidelity. We're we're bombarded by it in our in our culture on TV and the billboards and in on, on computers everywhere we turn. It's a battle that we must fight to the very end of our lives out of love for Christ and love for our mates or our future mates. It's also one I want to say to you as, as uh, dads, as grandfathers, as fathers of, or men who have a responsibility to look out for, for uh, uh, women in your life or women in the, in the uh, congregation or you're under uh, your influence. Uh, you know, our, our, the, 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 the culture is, I've, I'm, uh, I'm learning slowly by my uh, young, younger children and also by the young people I work with, uh, we live in a hookup culture. That is, 
it is acceptable uh, to have sex with no relationship, and it's uh, more and more an acceptable practice even among Christians, even among so-called sophisticated people. And uh, I recently came into, I was confronted with this and at the recent golf tournament here in town, <clears throat> uh, one of the young women in our church was uh, volunteering there and, and uh, she got in a conversation with uh, one of the professional golfers. And he asked her out. And she knew I knew the golfer a little bit, and she asked me as her pastor, do you know anything about this guy? I, I'm, uh, I just want to make sure I'm not getting into something that that's, could be dangerous or whatever. So I do know the golfer a little bit, and I, so I checked him out. I checked him out with his college coach. I checked him out with caddies. I checked him out with a golf promoter. I checked him out with a legend, a golf legend. And all I could get was, we don't know him very well, but we think he should treat her as a gentleman. After all, he's a golfer. I didn't believe that very much. But, uh, <clears throat> um, but uh, I gave her the port. She was nevertheless uh, circumspect in, in what she did. And um, so there were some text exchanges, and, and uh, you, you know, first he was too tired after the tournament to, to uh, have dinner that night or whatever, and then he, he took a nap, he felt better. And then he said, um, yes, now I'm, you know, I'm feeling a lot better. I'd like to coax you into a hookup. Those were his, that's his invitation hoping to coax you into a hookup. And she answered this way. I asked her if I could share this. For what it's worth, I was created by God and loved and redeemed by Jesus to be way more than an object of casual sex. And the same is true for you, whether you believe it or not. See you on the course tomorrow. We'll be cheering for you. We bogeyed the hole she was working on for the first time in the tournament <clears throat> and lost the tournament. And if he had gotten any farther, I think I'd have had to break his legs. He did, <clears throat> I, did, uh, I did actually try to, f to find him after the tournament. I'm glad God prevented this. But I tried to find him after the tournament, and I thought it would be a very effective means of evangelism if I could explain to him how close the end of his career came with a few phone calls. Now, I share that for several reasons. One is, um, that is the common interaction among uh, younger adults and acceptable even among Christians, so-called Christians. And it calls us to several things as men. One, it calls men, if you're single, to date and to think about marriage. And to be honest, that maybe one reason you are not dating and not marrying is because pornography or Hollywood has shaped you in such a way that you judge women unfairly and they have to be absolutely perfect before 
you'll go any farther with them. Another challenge to young single men is think about the, the young sisters, the sisters you have around you. And uh, even if you don't want to get married, uh, can you not at least organize something so that they're not sitting at home alone all the time and tempted to respond to these kinds of things? You know, there would be the longing. It would be understandable that she would say, you know, I really have longed for uh, intimacy, and maybe this would lead to a permanent relationship. Temptation is faced every day. It also calls us as those who are in some authority, pastors, elders, deacons, just dads, granddads, to provide as much protection as we can uh, and, uh, and to look out for our sisters and for their well-being. Well, Paul takes it very seriously. God takes it very seriously. God is very protective of his daughters to the point that he says, I will avenge those who mistreat them. So Paul spends a lot of time there. That's why we've spent so much time there. Paul spends a lot of time saying, God's will for you is sanctification. And one of the primary ways, one of the, the ways the cross is going to bear most heavily on you is yielding your sexual appetites to Jesus as Lord. But then uh, he also addresses other things. Um, he addresses verse 9, brotherly love. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands and instructed you. Now, he uses that word over and over. Brothers, brothers, brothers. We're accustomed to it because we live in the Christian church so much. But this was kind of a radical, this was a radical word for them. I'm telling you, you must lay your life down, sacrifice for, offer hospitality to, give friendship and fellowship to those who are anyone who identifies as a Christian. It doesn't matter whether you're, you, you, you like the way they look. It doesn't matter whether you're in your social circles or not. It doesn't matter if they're even Macedonians. Well, that's the, the impact of his word. Macedonians were poor people. And they were coming through to get to the port and... Uh, the Thessalonians, more sophisticated, so forth, would say, we've mm, got a Macedonian coming through. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. Would you be willing to give him, give him a, a place, a, a lodging? Are you, really, are you willing to take him to the party with you, the, the, the fellowship dinner with you the night before? Are you, he's a Christian? Oh, I'd love to. He's also a Macedonian. Mm, I think I'm busy that night. Paul says the way you give away that Christ lives in you is the fellowship, the love, the brotherhood you have with people that are not like you, not in your social circles, don't look like you, 
uh, don't act like you, but they have this in common, Christ. They will know you are Christians by the way you love one another. Uh, There's no love that anyone has for anyone except like the love of laying down one's life for another. Demonstrate the reality of Christ living in you. That's what John's uh, epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are all about. You want to prove that you belong to Jesus? It'll come out the way you love people and love the ones that you're not supposed to love. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Look quickly over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul has to bring this up again. Apparently, there was a group in uh, Thessalonica who uh, thought that uh, it was uh, the most spiritual thing to do was to do nothing and to wait for Christ to return. And uh, they were living on the handouts of the church. They were living on the welfare of the church. We command you, and this is what Paul said. Apparently, they didn't listen to him in the first letter when he says, you need to work with your own hands to manage your own affairs as we instructed you, uh, <clears throat> not only so that you would not presume on the church of Jesus Christ, but also so that you would be a good witness to the world and, and also strategically so that you're not dependent on unbelievers who are out to get us. Well, they didn't get it in the first letter, so he writes it again in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition we receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we are not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example of how to, of, um, uh, to imitate For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. If a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. Now, it's not that we let people starve, but we encourage people to, We encourage one another to work with our hands to become productive so that they might um, not be a burden, undue burden on others, would be a good testimony to the world and uh, have something to give to the community for the relief of others. The final thing I want you to see as we close, verse 8, is how do you do all these things? How in the world can you live a sexually pure life, an industrious life, a life that loves people you're not supposed to love. It's only, verse 8, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is to ask 
Jesus, give me your spirit to do what I'm commanded to do because I cannot do it on my own. And it's not only to ask his spirit directly in personal prayer, it's to rely on his spirit in the community of Christ, to ask other brothers to help you, to hold you accountable, to pray for you, to encourage you. When my, um, <clears throat> each of my sons-in-law were approaching, uh, showing interest in my daughters whom they uh, ultimately married, um, I uh, wrote uh, each of them a letter. And uh, I had a chance to practice on previous boyfriends who looked like they were getting close, so I, I had the letter already saved, <laughs> and I could edit it. <clears throat> and um, I, uh, I didn't share it with my wife because uh, uh, I, shared, I told her I was going to write a letter, but she uh, would have been horrified at what I said, but she's not a father. I ran it by other fathers. They liked it. <clears throat> and the letter was, uh, after we'd had a conversation, I said, <clears throat> uh, this is, this is the, these are the commands of Scripture regarding the way you will uh, deal with a woman who's not your wife. And I outlined it for him. And then um, I said uh, that they, you, you, you will... Uh, I will not allow you to marry my daughter until you have been you have been clean of pornography for two years. And um, I never I didn't ask, do you struggle with pornography? I've learned not to ask that question for men under a certain age because it is a struggle. It's a pandemic. So I said, I know you do. And what I expect is you will be clean of it for two years. And the way I'll know that you're clean of it for two years is I'm going to buy a steak dinner with you, for you, with my friend who is a pastor in the city where you're living, and you'll remain accountable to him for those two years. And uh, you'll have a community of brothers who are walking the same thing with you. But I said, look, those are just, those are helpful boundaries to have around you. But here, and I said this more in person, but here's the secret to remaining pure and preparing yourself for marriage is to love Christ above all other things. It's Thomas Chalmers old, you've heard me say it before, the expulsive power of a new affection. You will never turn away from sexual immorality, sexual temptation, any temptation for that matter, by just saying, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to determine I'm not going to do it anymore. You don't have that power. The only way you can turn from something you're really in love with as a sin, whether it's sexual sin, financial sin, or the sin of your, of your, your materialism, is to have a more powerful love by, of Jesus, expel it. So it is instead of saying, I can't look at that, I can't look at that, I can't look at that, I've got to put on covenant eyes, I've got to have my accountability group, it is first to say with Lord Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at you, realize what you've done for me, I love you for that. And would your overwhelming love for me expel this temptation? Give me a greater love for you than for this.
And the way we walk in that way is by a vigorous, fervent commitment, first of all, to corporate worship. Weekly corporate worship. Not at the lake, not at your TV screen, but with the people of God. Where the Spirit of God falls on you and enraptures your heart afresh. And then it's by being in fellowship with other men, brothers and sisters, who are pursuing the same Christ. And being honest with those around you, this is where, this is a, this is a love I'm being pulled toward. This is a, you know, I, I have this love for revenge, or I have this love for bitterness, or I have this love for pornography, or I have this love for materialism, or I have this love for these things that I have, or these accolades. I have this love, brother. I'm telling you, I need you to pray for me that the Spirit would drive out that love with a greater love for Jesus, with a greater vision for the day I'm going to stand before Him, and all of this stuff will mean nothing, and all that will matter is to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Please pray for me that that love would expel all others. Well, uh, brothers, thank you for your devotion to the Word of God and to following Christ. And may God use us together in encouraging one another in this walk of discipleship as well as in the discipleship that we are conducting with others who are following us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pray that this day there would be much thought in our sanctified imagination of that day when we will stand before you in judgment and we'll look at you still bearing scars and wounds in your body that you bore for us. And we'll be overwhelmed, we'll be speechless with the visible proof of your love for us. You loved us so much that you died for us while we were yet your enemies. Give us many glimpses of that view, vision today, Lord. And would that love for you and that love from you expel all lesser loves, all misaligned loves, uh, all temptations. We pray for the expulsive power of a new affection for Jesus Christ. We would desire to be holy, not because we know we'll be saved by it, we desire to be holy because we love you and want our lives to be pleasing to you, the one who loved us first. I give my brothers uh, over to you today and pray your deepest, most profound encouragement, <clears throat> maybe even conversion for some, deep repentance for others. I give them to you and pray that you would love them well today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.